And then, right, I'm sorry if my voice is a little scratchy. Uh, I don't sing high very well, and um, had to hit a couple high notes. Thanks, Zach. But um, don't know if they were the right high notes, but they were a note. Um, anyways, let's get into the word. Um, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter 17, we're gonna start with verse four. It says, "Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall." He wore a bronze helmet, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. That's heavier than me, so he had a lot of armor. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Now at this point, we're going to skip down a few verses. Uh, David was given food to take to Saul and his army at the camp. Now, uh, verse 14 says, David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army. We're going to skip down to verse 32. Uh, David was going to the uh, place of the battle in Saul's camp, and he heard of Goliath. And David said, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. Verse 33, look what uh, Saul replies. He says, don't be ridiculous. There is no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Now, David talks about how he fought off lions and bears to protect his sheep because he's a shepherd. And in verse 37, it says, uh, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. David had a lot of faith. And um, now Goliath asked if David thought that he was a dog. And in verse 45, David replies, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. If you could show that Goliath slide. So this is a comparison. The height of an average man is about 5'10 ish. And Goliath, you can't even see his head in the picture. I mean, <laughs> the Bible says he was over nine feet tall. And uh, if you could show Yao Ming, he's um, kind of a current Goliath. The one where the man is hugging his leg. <laughs> there, there we go. Okay. <laughs> you know, that uh, kind of looks like me standing next to Brother Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The guy in the picture, that's Yao Ming. He was a basketball player for the Houston Rockets. He was 7'6", so that's um, two feet shorter than Goliath. So um, Now, uh, a few days ago, in my history class, we always have a history discussion, um, and we talk about 30 to 45 minutes. So my teacher will ask a question, and that day, the question was, what does it take to get into heaven? So I was like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to wait for a little bit until I answered to see what other people thought because I was curious to what they believed. And to my surprise, a lot of them didn't even think that there was a heaven or hell or even a God. And so they, they only thought that to get into heaven, you needed good works and not faith or anything like that. And so then I spoke up and um, I told them that you need to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, repent and be baptized of every one of your sins, and live a devoted life to Jesus the rest of your life. Because in James chapter 2, it says, faith without works is dead. 
So they correlate with each other, so you can't just have one. Um, but my history teacher was just frozen after I said that. I mean, he, he didn't know what to do. He was just like, all right, moving on. But um, faith is really important to our walk and relationship with God. We have to trust his will and not our own. A lot of the times we'll try and um, take things into our own hands, and as we know, it never goes well. Because you could be in an impossible situation or an impossible circumstance, and the only thing that can deliver you from that is God. And so taking it into your own will is not a good idea. Now, um, I've developed a lot of faith over the past few years. I've been in Bible quizzing for five years. I highly recommend it. It's changed my life a lot. And, um, but Bible quizzing does require a lot of faith. You want to give up a lot of the times when you're studying because it's a lot of hard work. But it is really fun, and it's worth it in the end. And every Bible quizzer will tell you that. So, um, but what tested my faith was the most uh, was when I was when when I would be in a um, in a quiz in a quizzing match, and um, my teammate Kiera, she was my teammate last year, and she would she would hit the buzzer, and so I had faith that she would get it right because she knew her material very well. She's a very good quizzer, and um, but she sometimes would wait until like the last five or ten seconds to answer the question. Because you have a 30-second time span, so I'm just sitting there on the buzzer for 20 seconds just wondering if she's going to get it right. And so sometimes my face starts to slide off, and, like, maybe she isn't going to get it right. Because, like, you got to hurry up. You don't have a lot of time. But um, she, she did always pull through. So, um, but still, it tests our faith a lot. Another example of faith in the Bible was when Peter was walking on the water towards Jesus. Jesus told him to um, come to him on the water, and uh, he trusted God. At first, he, he uh, stepped out of the boat and took a few steps, and then he turned and saw the storm around him. He saw all the circumstances that he was in and his impossible situation, even though God was right in front of him. And so he, he collapsed into the water and, um, and lost his faith. In Mark chapter 5, the woman with an issue of blood, she had an issue of blood for 12 years. And she heard of Jesus then, and she had so much faith that she could be healed by Jesus, and so she touched the hem of his garment, and she was instantaneously healed. Now, you always have to live in faith, because if you're not living in faith, you're living in fear. Because I mean, when you're in your impossible situation, then you, um, you have to trust God's will and not your own, because, uh, I mean, as I said earlier, it never goes well. But also, you get fearful when you start living uh, in your will and not God's will, because, um, I mean, it just never goes well. And so in First Samuel uh, 17, I think it was 33. Can you throw that verse up? It says, Saul says, um, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. It's funny to me how Saul is supposed to be this great man of God, and then he looks to David and says, you're only a boy. You can't fight this man. But um, David had so much faith, and he knew that he was so much more than just a young boy because he had the power of God on his side. Now, David was used by God at such a young age, and so he can use every single one of you, no matter your age. So I'm going to close with a story. On December 9th, 2004, the Houston Rockets of the NBA needed 13 points to win over the San Antonio Spurs. The score was 76-68, to 68, but the Spurs kept scoring. Every Houston fan thought that the game was over. Nobody had faith that the Rockets would come back. The odds were near impossible, and only one man on the Rockets had faith that they could still win. Sound familiar? That man was Tracy McGrady, as you can see up on the slide. 
He kept pushing and shooting and scoring and playing defense until the Rockets had won the game. McGrady scored 13 points in that 33-second time span, which is really impressive. In his post-game interview, McGrady explained that the team was down and the best player had to step up. And that's what we have to do in our lives. And I'm not saying go around and tell everybody that you're the best and you need to tell them how to live your life. But um, what I'm saying is, in your area and wherever you are, you may know the most about God. You may have the best relationship with God. You may know what it takes to get to heaven in your history class. And so that's when you have to step up and make disciples as God has called us to do. Now, a lot of the times in your circumstances, uh, the devil will try to trip you up all the time. But again, you have to have faith to overcome that because any amount of faith that you have in God is so much more powerful than what the devil can do. And I'll close with this statement. When does it become possible? It becomes possible when we have faith and let God take control in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your graciousness towards us, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, Jesus. You are amazing, Lord. Good morning, beautiful people. How are you guys doing today? Good to hear. I'm going to open on John 13, 34 through 35. we go. (laughs) So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Right now, I want to ask you guys to picture somebody in your head that you love. I'm going to guess the person you're picturing, you love them and they love you back. You share that connection of love with them. Most of us didn't picture somebody who we love, but they don't love us back because that's not where our mind goes whenever I ask you to think of somebody who you love. But what about those people? What about those people that you should love, but they don't love you back? Why should we love those people? Matthew 5, 43, verses 44 says, You have heard the law that says love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So why should we love our enemies? What do we get out of that? There's a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. And it says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. That leads me to the title of the message today, which is Smothering the Flames of Hate. Has anyone ever told you that they hate you? Somebody that you love, it's a hard thing to hear from somebody that you love because you show so much love and you have this feeling of love for them, but then they come back at you and they say, oh, I hate you. And most of the time, I'm going to guess, whenever someone says they hate you, you don't go, well, I love you. So, Right, you don't say that because it's not something that is going to come immediately to you to say that you love someone back. It's a hard thing to say I love you to someone who says I hate you. Usually we come back with more anger. The problem with coming back with more anger, though, is it's like adding oxygen to a fire. Someone has a fire in their heart, and it's hate, and it's growing, and it's growing. Whenever you add more anger to anger that somebody already has, it's like adding oxygen to the fire, and it's building it. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Three things will last forever. Faith hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Love is a really powerful thing. I have especially learned this in sibling fights. Whenever you fight with your sibling, I told Joe last night that it's like you're this close, this, not like that close, to killing your sibling. And then the next minute you're watching a movie together and you're happy and you're just like being joyful together. But it's really interesting to see that because 
You can be so mad at somebody, but the love you have for them overpowers the anger that you have towards them. Luke 19, 1 through 10 says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. I'm relating to Zacchaeus right now. (laughs) So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus, and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated the people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. What's the significance of this story? Zacchaeus' heart was changed through love. God showed him love. Most people wouldn't show love to Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. Nobody wanted to talk to him because he was a sinner. But God showed love to him, and it changed his heart. He felt loved, and he felt appreciated. And he, God could have chose any single person in Jericho to ask to house him, but he asked Zacchaeus the sinner. And so it's important that we show love to the people who are hurt, to the people that are broken, to the people who are lost, because those are the people that need the love the most. And it can change someone's heart when you show someone just a little bit of love. There is another story in the book of Mark, and Jesus is eating at Matthew's house with the sinners, and he's eating with his disciples and with, let me make sure I'm saying the right thing, Pharisees, I think that's right, yeah, Pharisees. And... The Pharisees are asking, they say, why is Jesus eating with these sinners? Why would he want to eat with people that would sin and do such awful things? And in Mark 2, 17, he says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. People that give hate usually have a reason that they are giving hate. They have something that's happened to them, something that they've gone through, and it has caused them to have a feeling of hate in their heart and this emotion towards people. I remember in kindergarten, um, they focused a lot on how to take out your anger because when you're a little kid, you can get angry at little stuff all the time. And so they had counselors come in, and they told us two ways to deal with our anger. One was being screaming a pillow when you go home, and the other being punch the wall. Don't do either of these things. <laughs> not, not a good idea. But it's funny because... Some people don't know how to take out the anger that they have, and so they take it out on other people, and they show hate to other people. I remember my sister. (laughs) um, I was asking to borrow her DS when I was, like, eight years old, and she gave me her DS to play. I think it was Mario Bros. That was, like, my favorite game ever. (laughs) And I was playing, and I wasn't very good at it because it's Mario Bros. It's hard, okay? And so she gave me her DS, and I was playing the game, and I kept losing to Bowser, is that? I don't even know. Someone's going to have to correct me later. Um, And I was getting so irritated, and I got so mad to the point where I snapped her DS in half. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I think that kind of goes to show how we can take our anger out in the wrong way. (laughs) I did have to give her my DS later, so we do pay the consequences for it. (laughs) Um, 
But some people do not know how to take out their anger. Like I said, I did not at eight years old. And it's just something that we need to be reminded that we need to show mercy unto those people that do not know how to take out their anger. We need to show love to them. There is a rock church, rock church verse that we learned, and it was our memory verse. It was a few weeks back. And it was Ephesians 4.32. And it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We need to forgive and show compassion to the hateful because the verse says, just as in Christ God forgave you. We have all done wrong. There's a verse that's in Romans 3.23 that says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. God has had to forgive you for your sins, right? You've done something in your past and you've come to the altar and God has forgiven you. So why shouldn't we show forgiveness unto those who do us wrong? Because God has done the same thing for us. Showing love to those people that have hurt us and have done wrong against us. Just showing love to them, even just saying, oh, I love you. That can heal someone's heart like it did Zacchaeus' heart. God showed him love, and it changed him. Instead of being the oxygen to the fire in someone's heart, instead of being the oxygen to the hate, be the water and put the fire out that is in their heart. The water is the love. You need to be the water. You need to be the love. You need to put the fire out that is in their heart because the fire is soon going to overtake them. And if you're not the, the water that brings out the love, then they can never be healed. And sometimes you're the one chance people have to be healed. And you have to take advantage of that. And you have to be the person whenever God is giving you, giving you to them to be the person to heal them. I'm going to close on Colossians 3.14. It says, above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. I'm going to encourage you today and forever, hopefully, to not just love the person that's sitting next to you. Don't just love the person you thought of in your head that loves you back. But turn to those people who are hurt, the people who are broken, the people who have shown you hate, even though it might hurt you and they may have caused you pain. You need to show love to them because those are the people that need it the most. I'm going to ask you guys to pray right now over Brother Luke's sermon as he speaks. Let's go ahead and go into prayer. And Jesus, oh Lord, we ask you, God, that you just anoint him, God, that you take any fear he might have away, God. Just touch his mind and his heart, Lord. Use him today, God. Yes, amen. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise today in this building? Yes, God. First, uh, before I begin, I'd like to give honor and thanks on behalf of us three, the praise team, and the rest of the youth group, um, to Pastor Sister Jackie, to Brother Chad and Sister Tiffany, Brother Michael and Sister Rachel, for allowing us this opportunity to come up. We are so thankful for our leadership team here. They do an amazing job. I'd like to begin by opening with John chapter 5, verses 2 through 9. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in and was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity of thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, 
Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. When the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm, I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Now Jesus saith unto him, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. I'd like to take a few minutes this morning to encourage you to rise. Throughout the Gospels that describe the life of Jesus, many miracles were performed. With these many miracles, the person being healed was ready to take the initiative to go to Jesus and receive their healing. They were tired of living in the current state of misery, shame, and guilt they had been living in for all of their lives. They knew that they wanted to be healed and were willing to do whatever it took to receive their miracle. So when they heard that a man named Jesus was walking the streets, opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, turning water into wine, and performing countless other miracles, they found a way to get to this man by any means necessary. You know, sometimes I think when I'm looking at these scriptures, we take Jesus for granted because these people were willing to do whatever it took to get to him. See, we have him at our ready whenever we need help. All we have to do is whisper his name and he is right there. You see, we get so used to having him right here that we only talk to him whenever we need something or whenever it's convenient for us. For the people who received their healings in the Gospels, however, it was a much different story. People were being lowered from rooftops, pushing their way through violent crowds, giving some of their most precious items, and even climbing trees in order to get a fleeting glimpse of Jesus and be in his presence. You know, it's sad to see today that we take the one who can literally do anything for us for granted. And the thing is, we don't deserve his love. Because if God wanted to... He could wipe out the human race and start over with a new creation that praises him endlessly without fail. It even talks about in the Old Testament, God, he was distraught with the creation that he made. He wanted, I mean, he, he could have just ended humanity right there and started over. But why didn't he do that? It's because he loves us. He loves his creation so much, he came down to take on flesh and endure physical and emotional pain that none of us could even begin to imagine so that we could have a personal relationship and connection with him. In our day-to-day -day life, there are many times that we as humans have to rise. For instance, one of the hardest times to rise is in the morning. We have to get up for school, we have to get up for work, and we don't always want to get up from our warm bed to sit in those classes with hour-long lectures. Now, if you do, I mean, that's great. Come find me after service. I'd love to <laughs> hear how you do that. But for the majority of us, it's often difficult to rise when we hear the familiar beep, 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 beep coming from our alarm clock in the morning, especially when, they're middle, we're in, when we're in the middle of like an amazing dream. Like, you know the ones where you're flying above the cities and then, yeah. Another familiar instance in which we have to rise is when we have people to take care of. For instance, like for parents, you rise up every day to ensure that your kid has the best chance of success in every circumstance. For people that are my age, it can look like taking care of your friends by talking to them when they're going through emotional distress or just taking them out for dinner when things get rough at home for them just to have an escape. 
In these situations, we take the initiative to do something that isn't always convenient or fun for us in order to enhance our relationship with others. So why is it that we can't always do that for God? We find ourselves skipping prayer time or partaking in sin because it really can't be that bad, right? But what if we started applying the same principle to our human interactions and friendships? What would happen if parents stopped making sacrifices for their kids? Or what if friends stopped going out of their ways to cheer each other up? Those connections would be broken. The same thing happens with our relationship with Jesus. He feels grief and sadness just like us when we don't talk to him. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 19, it says, Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? Why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. You see, this passage shows just how much God cares about us. When his people turn away from him, he was devastated and he wept. It says that his eyes were a fountain of tears. This proves to us how much God really loves us. And he wants us to love him and have a desire to be with him. You see, we oftentimes get so distracted by the remedies and activities of this world that we feel will heal us. We even see this with a man in our opening text. He was so concerned about getting into the pool that an angel had been in when the one who bestowed the power to the angel was right there in front of him. We need to be intentional in seeking God. He is directly in front of you just waiting for you to focus on him as opposed to the other activities that you find safety in. There are so many things that this world tells us to turn to that will provide temporary relief, but have no eternal value. Sometimes it's not even a sin that's distracting us. It could be a job, social media, or sports that when used with moderation aren't bad. However, when we take time away from God to focus on these things, that is when those activities become an idol that need to be dealt with. As I close, when you decide to turn your undivided attention to God, you will begin to see miracles in your life. The same God who performed 37 miracles in the four Gospels alone, including unimaginable things like raising people from the dead, is here today and is still capable of showing us his glory. All we have to do is give him the opportunity. I'd like to point out how in the story of the man with the infirmity, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to try to heal you. He asked him, wilt thou be made whole? He was asking if the man was willing to be healed. This seems like such an easy to answer question, and we can almost laugh at the fact that Jesus had to ask this question. But in reality, doesn't Jesus ask us this question every day? Why is it that when we hear about people being asked this question, we find it humorous but can't seem to answer it ourselves? Of course, everybody wants to be healed of whatever physical, mental, or spiritual battle that they're going through. However, there are too many times that people choose to not be healed by partaking in the things of this world. How many miracles have been missed out on simply because God wasn't given the chance? 
How many demons could have been cast out? How many sick bodies could have been made whole? How many chains could have fallen if only we gave him the chance? As we all stand today. Somebody here needs to rise. You have already been healed and the chains have already been broken. You are complaining that God won't heal you even though he already has. You must today take up your bed and walk. Walk away from the mistake that is making you feel like God can't possibly love you. The Bible says in Lamentations 3 verse 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I'm here to tell you today that God will always love us. Right now, you must take initiative. Get away from your complacency and declare victory over your health your marriages, your addiction, your life. Be encouraged knowing that the battle has already been fought and it has already been won. Yes. Jesus is coming back soon and we don't have time to push a relationship with him off and say we'll get serious about God someday. Now is the time to make those consecrations and enhance your relationship with your creator. Now is the time to do the things you have always promised God you would do. Right now, I'd like to invite you to find a place to pray. Today on this youth-led service, you can give your life back to God and be changed. Let there be no doubt in anybody's minds right now. Your God will never forsake you. He is with you and wants to be with you forever and ever. He has prepared a kingdom for us to rule with him for eternity. And our time to reign with him is drawing nearer and nearer. Rise up and don't miss your opportunity to have eternal life. Turn from your sin and lift your eyes up unto the hills from whence cometh your help. Speak to your mountain and command it to be moved. Weapons may be formed against us, but when we have the Almighty on our side, they will not prosper. Take up thy bed and walk in the name of Jesus.
pray.